Amen. Now, last week we were looking at chapter 7, and we were looking at those long lists of names, and how Nehemiah has, uh, is, is going to produce a census, and this is going to be based upon the document that Ezra had compiled back in Ezra chapter 2. And here in chapter 7, not only is this uh, census being done, Nehemiah will also appoint people to help in the administration and the running of the city. And we noted that he appointed his brother Hanani and another by the name of Hananiah, and they were charged to look after Jerusalem. And we saw how they were faithful men, and they feared God above many. And so this city at this point is sparsely populated. People were living out in the surrounding cities throughout Israel. We find that in verse 73 of chapter 7. The children of Israel were in their cities. They weren't in Jerusalem. And so the walls had been built. The temple had been erected. The altar had been reared up. But there were no people to speak of, of any great number, that were actually living and dwelling in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a city to be populated with people. And so this work is going to take place, the repopulation of Jerusalem. As we come to chapter 8, we find that there is now a reformation taking place, not so much with the building of the walls and the temple structure itself, but within the hearts and within the minds of the people. Up until this point, we've been focusing and the people were focusing upon the, the bricks and the mortar, if you like. But now they are thinking and they are dwelling upon this subject of their communion with God, how they are to meet with God and how they are to be right in the sight of God. And so as we come to chapter 8, we are going to look in this first verse how the call goes out, secondly, how the people gather, the unity of the people, thirdly, and the desire of the people. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So the call goes out. Now you may be scratching your head and think to yourself, well, I don't see that being mentioned, that there's a call going out. Well, if we look at the end of chapter 7, and then as we look at uh, further on in chapter 8, in verse number 2, the people are gathering on this day, and it is the first day of the seventh month. And that was a significant day because it was the Feast of the Trumpets. Now, in the Jewish calendar, there were a number of feast days, and one of these feast days was the Feast of the Trumpets. And it would accompany and would be a preparation for a number of other feast days that would take place in this particular time. So, as we read toward the end of chapter 8, you have the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, being mentioned. Now, this day, the Feast of Trumpets, is mentioned back in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse number 24. Leviticus 23 and verse 24. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, 
in the first day of the month shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So this was a special day. It was one of the additional Sabbaths. This is different to the weekly Sabbaths, but throughout the year and at other points in, in, in periods such as the year of Jubilee, there would be other additional Sabbaths that the children of Israel were to uh, adhere to and to keep. It was a day of rest. No servile work was to be done. And it would be for the purpose of blowing these trumpets and people gathering together for this solemn assembly or this holy convocation. You have the way in which God's people gather, and you find that in a number of occasions they are mentioned in the Old Testament. So, for example, you could look at the prophecy of Zephaniah, chapter 3, and verse number 18. We thought about this during the lockdown period. And there in Zephaniah, we find that these solemn assemblies are being referred to. And the people there were sad because the solemn assemblies were being neglected and they were sorrowful for them. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee to whom the reproach of it was a burden. You have uh, in the book of Joel as well uh, the way in which the solemn assembly is mentioned in chapter 1 and verse uh, 14 and also in chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, that call for the solemn assembly or the gathering of God's people. So this gathering that we have in Nehemiah 8 is according to the law of God, according to the Levitical instructions. The blowing of the trumpet was practically, uh, very immensely practical. If you could think about a trumpet being sounded, it could be heard far and wide. It could be heard further than the natural voice could be heard. And it would be used to raise an alarm. It would be used to warn of danger. It would be used also, in this case, for the people to come and gather. Trumpets are mentioned in many places in the scriptures. For example, in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, you find that many terrifying things take place, and one of those things that takes place is the noise of the trumpet, a sign that the presence of the Lord was there. We have these various trumpets being used, and we find that they were also used in battle. So, for example, Joshua, at the, as he's going around the walls of Jericho, the trumpet would be sounded. Psalm 47, verse 5, speaks about the Lord going up with a shout and with the sound of the trumpet. Coming to the New Testament, we see how the trumpet is used in the world and the signal for the elect to be gathered in. Matthew 24, verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
And then in the book of the Revelation, we have this in Revelation 4, verse 1. This is one of many references. We have it there. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be hereafter. The idea of gathering together, that calling up by God to meet with him. I remember my grandfather singing a hymn, and it was a favorite of his. Perhaps some of you know it, perhaps some of you don't, but it was this. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. And then when life is over and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That calling to gather. And in these contexts, it's his calling to meet with God. One further reference I want to just draw your attention to, and that's found in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 to 9. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. And here Paul is speaking about the, the infatuation the church at Corinth is having with these extraordinary gifts. And he likens our speech and our communication to the blowing of the trumpet. And if we are speaking in languages or using tongues that are gibberish, that people don't understand, then it's going to be an uncertain sound for people coming in and hearing. And when we think about the gospel going out, it's like a trumpet going out loud and bright with a distinct sound calling men and women to consider their ways before God. Now, whilst many will reject and pass by and ignore that trumpet sound, that will be upon them. But to those that respond because they have ears to hear, opened by the Spirit of God, that sound comes clear because it comes from the Savior. So what we have in verse 1 of chapter 8 is a gathering on that Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. The second thing to notice is that people gathered. The trumpet has sounded. The expectation is that people should gather. But we find that people do, in fact, heed the call to assemble and to meet with God. And so, as the trumpet has sounded, people that have been far away are now converging on Jerusalem. And if you just note in verse number one, 
how they don't meet in the temple courts like we might expect them to meet. They actually meet in the water gates. And so, if they were just confined to that outer court of the temple, it would be far too small to accommodate all these people gathering from the outlying cities. And the whole city was going to be sanctified to God, and therefore gathering at the water gate was more than appropriate for this occasion. So here they are at the water gate, heeding the call to assemble and to gather. They are obedient to it. There's no delay. There's no putting off this gathering. There's no rejection of this call. There's no question in their minds saying, well, it's not convenient today for us to gather. We'll perhaps come at a more suitable time to us. It sounded, and the people respond. Up from their cities to Jerusalem. Now, when we think about the people of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in the glorified church, we find that the Lord's people, they gather together. The people of God are not in the normal design of things to exist isolated from other believers. Now, of course, there are exceptions. John was on the Isle of Patmos, persecuted, banished, exiled. We could think about others in bonds. Paul himself was confined to prison, and so he was prevented from gathering with the people of God. We could think about other examples, those that are unwell or those that are infirm. When we think about leprosy in the Old Testament, if there was a a suspicion of leprosy in a person, then they were to remain confined to their house. They were not permitted to gather with the rest of the company of God's people. And so there are times and there are exceptions when we, for some reason or the other, are going to be prevented from gathering with God's people. It could be that there are no believers in our area. The Ethiopian eunuch is making his journey back to the household of Candace, the queen, and there he is likely to be the only believer in that place. But sadly, what we find is professing believers who willfully forsake the assembling of the saints together. And it's covered by a variety of excuses. We're too busy. Or people don't agree with what I believe. They perhaps don't put it that way. They perhaps couch it that other people don't believe uh, are being unfaithful in what they believe, uh, but they uh, can't find anybody that agrees with them. Others may say that church is not essential and we can worship alone and in our homes. And whilst we do worship at home and alone at times, that is not to put away the command to gather. Over the last two years, this explosion of online church, which in fact doesn't really make sense because church is all about gathering the called out ones. So you can't have an online church. You can have a live stream. You can have a live broadcast, but you can't have an online church. It doesn't make sense. But people now can think to themselves they can just tune in to a service at their convenience. They will pick and choose what they want to watch or not. 
and perhaps they might even join with a church many thousands of miles away. Now, whilst the virtual gathering may have been necessary and may have been very helpful and best of a bad situation, it doesn't constitute a change in what is required in the Scriptures of gathering as God's people. We come to the New Testament, we find a number of examples of the Lord's people gathering. Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts, to the Lord. There is that idea of being together and uh, making noise together and communicating with each other. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There, the writer to the Hebrews is, is giving the command that people shouldn't forsake the gathering together, but also an exhortation. We need to do it even more so with the days in which we live. In 1 Corinthians 14, we have Paul saying, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. It's clearly in the mind of Paul that God's people gather together physically in one place. In Acts chapter 2, in fact, the whole of Acts chapter 2 is all about the people gathering. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then you come to the end, verses 42 to 47, and you see the outworking of that, that in practice, in those that are now converted. Psalm 50, verse 5, gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me, by sacrifice. And so these people are gathering together to meet with each other, but principally to meet as one with God. How we must be careful that we don't neglect the assembling together of the saints. How we must not give an occasion for the flesh. So easy, isn't it? Uh, that it always, perhaps, I'll stay home today. Or perhaps. Uh, it's easier in my armchair. Well, there are difficulties, I know, we perhaps are unwell and we have to, but we must be careful that this doesn't become our practice and our custom. And when we do gather, we need to show in sincerity how that this is something that we desire. The third thing to notice is the people's unity. We read in verse 1 how they came together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. They were many, thousands, and yet they appear as one. They are coming in this chapter, in the following chapter, to confess their national sins, and so they are appearing before God as a people representative of the whole nation. So there was unity in their gathering, and there's now unity in their purpose and we find there's also going to be unity in their desires. When we think about the local and the universal church, it's made up of many, but it is one. It is the bride of Christ. 
And whilst within the congregation there may be a diversity of gifts, nationalities, sins which we have been forgiven of, ages, backgrounds, whatever distinction we might have, yet in Christ we are one. That is why when we think about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, our hearts should be moved to compassion with them because as they are suffering, we will weep with them. Or so we should. We are one in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ in his great high priestly prayer of John 17 speaks about his people being one. But it's in that context of the word that sanctifies them. And our unity is based in the truth of the scriptures of God. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me." Here we find these people gathering together as one. A spirit of unity was upon them. And when we come together, when we gather as God's people, do we come with that same spirit of unity, a desire to identify with the people of God? Or do we come seeking to be bound and governed by the scriptures of truth, being united to Christ, or are we coming as individuals wanting our own way and having our own opinions and putting forward our own agendas? These people came as one. The fourth thing to note, and with this we close, the people's desire. Here they are, here they are on one of these great feast days, significant in their history, that they can now have them. What is it that they desire? Do they desire entertainment? Do they desire a feast? Do they desire lively and engaging worship? Do they require and demand that they should have a fast dismissal so they can go back to their cities and get on with their life, that this is just an inconvenience for them in their, their daily experience? This is what they do. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. They require God's word to be read. They want Ezra the scribe to read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why are they concerned with that? 
They want to hear the word of God. It comes from God, it is of God, and it speaks of God. It speaks about their covenantal relationships with God. They are a people that have been brought into relationship with God, into covenant, and God has promised to bless them when they are obedient. And so by reading the law, it will remind them of those covenantal blessings. It will also remind them and assure them that they are, in fact, the people of God. They're not chosen because they are better than anybody else, but God has set his love and affection upon them. By reading the law of God, it will show the faithfulness of God to them, how God has kept them. He has been faithful to his word and to his promises, and that he has provided for them, he has dwelt with them, and he has protected them from their enemies. It will also show them and remind them of the way of reconciliation, the way of the sacrifice by which they might commune with God, the high priest, the tabernacle, later on the temple. These are the things they wanted and desired to hear. The psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse number 97 says this, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts, I have refrained my feet from evil that I might keep thy words. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The psalmist there says, Oh, how love I thy law. All he had was the law of God, the first five books, and he loved it all. Because within those first five books, we see all that there is to know about God. It's revealed further in other places, of course, but we see God being revealed. We see man's sinfulness and the fall of sin being shown. We see the plan of salvation being spoken about and being t uh, typed out in the, in the, in the pictures and the illustrations of the sacrifices and the symbols, and we see the rest that there is for the people of God, that journey through the wilderness, a picture of the journey through life. It is all there, but yet through the New Testament we find in Christ that these things are brought into plain sight. They loved God's words, and this is what they desired to hear. What a challenge for us. Many of those chapters in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy are, are hard going, but this is the desire of the people. They have gathered for this solemn occasion, and now they want the law of God read. When we gather for worship, when we gather as God's people,
We don't want to come to be entertained or to have our minds stretched with the words of a man, but we come to hear and to study and to think and meditate upon the word of God. That is what is going to give us life. That is what is going to give us strength. That is what's going to equip us to stand against all of the wiles and schemes of the evil one. May we, like these people, have that same desire